This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me in the second and third segments of today's program is best-selling author, Mr. Harry Dent. Harry is returning to the program after about a five-month hiatus. Uh, We'll get Harry's forecast for stocks. And if you have stocks or stock mutual funds in an IRA or a 401k account, you will want to be sure to stay tuned and listen to what Harry has to say uh, about stocks and where he sees stocks going this year. We have a May special report that clients of our company will receive in the form of a report that we call the You May Not Know Report. And I'd like to make it available to all the RLA radio listeners as well. The report is titled Five Retirement Threats and How to Potentially Avoid Them. And in this segment, I'll be identifying one of those threats and talking through the potential implications as it relates to you and your retirement. If you would like to get a complimentary copy of this report, again, titled Five Retirement Threats and How to Potentially Avoid Them, just visit requestyourreportnow.com, requestyourreportnow.com, and we'll be glad to mail you your copy of this report. So let's talk about one of these retirement threats, and I will simply label this debt levels and derivatives. Now, debt levels are easily defined. We all know what debt is, but many of you listening today perhaps have no earthly idea as to what a derivative is or much less how it could affect your dreams of a comfortable, stress-free retirement. So let me begin by defining a derivative. A derivative is a financial security whose value is taken from or derived from, hence the term derivative, the value of an underlying asset or group of assets. So a derivative is a security whose value is taken from the value of another security or based upon the value of another security. So let me give you a couple examples uh, that many of you may be familiar with. Some of you are familiar with an options contract. Well, an options contract is a derivative. There's something called a call option. Well, you might buy a call option, which gives you the option but you're not required, you don't have the obligation to buy a stock or an exchange-traded fund prior to an expiration date at a particular or predetermined price. So the call option gains in value as the underlying stock or exchange-traded fund gains in value. That's a derivative. Now, derivatives are essentially betting between parties. One party thinks the price of a stock or exchange-traded fund may go up. Another one thinks it may go down. So one buys a call option, another sells a call option. Now, that may be a bit of an oversimplification, but you get the idea. Now, how does this relate to banks? Well, banks trade derivatives, but they trade derivatives over the counter. Now, what what does that mean? What does banks trade derivatives over the counter mean? It simply means that the market 
is not subject to the same regulatory oversight as other markets. Now, banks typically trade in derivatives that change in value as interest rates move up or as interest rates move down. So they typically trade these derivative contracts over the counter. So essentially, these are side bets between banks on the direction of future interest rates. Now, we are starting to see cracks in the foundation of the derivatives market. Egon von Greyerts published a piece last week that offered some interesting and alarming, to be frank, perspective on this market. And I'm going to give you just some excerpts from this article. As I warned in last week's article on Archegos and Credit Suisse, Archegos is a hedge fund, and they lost a derivatives bet but could not pay up. And Mr. Von Greyerts wrote about this last week. He goes on to say that investment banks have created a time bomb with the $1.5 quadrillion derivatives monster. Now, the number of a quadrillion is a really difficult one to get your arms around. Just put a one on a piece of paper, put 15 zeros behind it, and you now have written the number one quadrillion. The derivatives market is one and a half quadrillion, according to Mr. Von Greyerts. Now, essentially, these investment banks, according to Mr. Von Greyerts, are making casino bets they can't afford to lose. Because shareholders of the bank have their invested capital at risk. Governments that insure bank deposits are taking a risk. Depositors that have money in the bank are taking a risk. And this market is extremely leveraged. Deutsche Bank, for example, according to Mr. Von Greyerts, has outstanding derivatives of 37 trillion euros. That is against total equity of 62 billion euros, so the derivatives position is 600 times the equity. That means a loss of 0.2%. Just 0.2% on the derivatives will wipe out the share capital and it will wipe out the bank. Now, banks trading in the derivatives market would attempt to make the argument that their derivative exposure is really not that high because what they're going to do is net out positions. Now, that's just fine until the counterparty, the other bank or hedge fund with whom the, Fed, the, the bet was made, can't pay up as agreed. See, a one bet is really a lost bet if it can't be collected. Now, Von Greyerts points out that when you add total world debt, total government unfunded liabilities, and total derivative exposure together, you get a staggering number. It's $2.3 quadrillion. To put that number in perspective, that's nearly $300,000 for every one of the 7.9 billion people that live on the planet. And it is seven times the total net worth that exists in the entire world. 
So the collapse, when it occurs, because derivatives and debt levels that exist at this magnitude cannot possibly be paid, those obligations cannot possibly be met, because it will require about seven times the total wealth that exists in the world to correct or to fix the problem. In other words, the problem is simply too large to correct or to fix. But governments and central banks are likely to try by creating even more money. That will lead to an outcome that we have been talking about for a very long time. Inflation followed by deflation. And the other four threats that are outlined in the May report lead to this same conclusion. And the report also offers you some strategies to consider for your own individual financial situation. So if you would like to get a copy of the May report titled Five Retirement Threats and How to Potentially Avoid Them, go to the website requestyourreportnow.com. The website, again, is requestyourreportnow.com. We will be glad to send you your complimentary copy of the May report. Just go to the website, let us know your name and where to mail the report, and we'll get it out to you as soon as it becomes available. And also, if you've not yet downloaded the RLA app, go to the App Store on your smartphone and search for your RLA. That's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A, Y-O-U-R-R-L-A. And you'll find the RLA app, which you can download and get all of our free resources there. I'll be back after these words with Mr. Harry Dent. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is prolific best-selling author and commentator and economist, Mr. Harry Dent. Uh, Harry is offering our listeners a free daily newsletter at harrydent.com. I'd encourage you to check it out. It's harrydent.com. And Harry, always a pleasure to chat with you. Welcome back to the program. Yeah, nice to be back, Dennis. So, Harry, the... The, the word that comes to mind when I look at what's going on in the economy, Fed policy, financial markets, is just crazy. Um, what's your take? Yeah, yeah, I call it insane is my word. I mean, to think that you can, every time you have a slowdown in the economy or the stock market, you can just print infinitely more money and expect it to go away is going to go down in history. I'm telling you, 10 years from now, before I die, people are going to look back at this and say, what were they smoking? It's going to look like the stupidest thing in history. And yet everybody, even Warren Buffett, everybody's like, oh, it's okay. They're just helping the economy, and, and it's good policy. This is not good policy. The economy, just like your body or anything else, needs to reset itself and heal itself now and then after it's overexpanded. And, and they're not letting it do it since 2008 when we had the crash, which really was the beginning of what looked like the next Great Depression, which is something I was forecasting 20 years before it happened when the baby boomers would predictably stop spending. Um, they just like they just like printed money to offset the downturn. That is cheating. That is 
bad policy. This is the stupidest economic policy in history, and, and people like Janet Yellen and, and even Jerome Powell, who I like a little more. I mean, Janet Yellen said, oh, we'll never have another financial crisis like this in, a, in the rest of your lifetime. Wrong. We're going to have a bigger one because we never dealt with the first one, never wrote down the bad debts, never got rid of the zombie company. How many zombie companies, public traded companies, cannot meet their debt service? 20%. Um, this, is, this is a debt economy revived only by endless money printing, and it will not end well. And I think, it, I think there's a potential peak here in late April or May, and if not, by the end of this year at the latest. It, 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 if it goes farther than the end of this year, Dennis, I'm going to quit and just retire in Puerto Rico and never say another thing again about economics, because this is this has gone way past any measure of valuation, any measure of sanity. This is insane. You know, and, and speaking of uh, the, using that word uh, insane, um, I read a piece this past week by Egon von Greertz uh, of Matterhorn Capital Management, and he said that when, when, you, when you add up the derivative exposure of banks, which he estimates at one and a half quadrillion dollars, and you take unfunded liabilities around the world, and you take debt around the world, you've got a 2.3 quadrillion dollar problem. Uh, and, and now we've got all these central banks trying to print money. Well, when this explodes, it seems to me this is going to be worse than anything we saw, you know, back in 2007, 2008, 1929. I mean, I mean, what's your take? Well, you know, I think it's in between. I th definitely, no question that the next downturn and the next stock crash is going to be worse than 2007 to 2009, okay? 1929 to 32 was the biggest bubble of that era and the biggest crash. And, and back then, central banks did not have the mandate or ethos of saying, oh, we got to print money. They only printed money late in the downturn and only 6% of GDP. We're up to 55% between fiscal and monetary stimulus in, in, in the last year and a half. So, so th this is, is different um, it is like the 29 top. It is on the same kind of long-term cycle. I think it, it's going to be the biggest crash of our lifetimes. But I still think that even though central banks will lose control here, they keep printing more money, but it keeps not working. So I think they're going to learn, lose control here pretty soon. But I still think they'll have enough backstop that they won't let the stock market fall 89% like it did in 32. So I think this will... You know, uh, we may see that big a drop, but it may be more like 60 to 70 percent. But I'm just telling people this will be the biggest stock crash in your lifetime. Home prices are going to go down more than they did between 2006 and 2011, 12, and that crisis. And and if you don't get out of the way of this, it, it's going to hurt really bad. This is really simple. You just get out of the way of an inevitable return to reality where this is not <laughs> anything strange here. We're just going to go back to where stocks should be. My model says stocks should be at 14,000 today on the Dow. And that means they'll, they're going to fall farther than that. And, and so you just have to protect your assets here. And then within two years, three years max, you can be able to buy real estate, 
uh, stocks, best companies at bargain prices that you'll never see in your lifetime again. And I'm sitting here in Puerto Rico, just sold my house in Calabria, and I'm looking at actually buying raw land there when things crash here. And they won't crash as bad here in Puerto Rico, but they, they could crash but because it's like the next St. John. So I'm always looking for opportunities. And you know what the best opportunities? When things go down. So people say, oh, Harry, you're so bearish. I'm like, no, wake up. If I'm right, we're going to see the, the buy opportunity of a lifetime and everything from stocks to real estate. And uh, But you have to get out of the way. You can't listen to your financial advisor that's going to say, oh, just hold, you know, there's corrections, just hold. No, this is not a normal correction. This is going to be a 1929 to 32 or 1972 to 74 style reset in stock prices and, and real estate and stuff. And you have to get out of the way. You can't hold through this. It's going to be at least a 60 to 70 percent crash in stocks and maybe 80 to 90 percent. You've got to get out of the way of that. It takes too long to recoup those losses. Well, if you're just joining us, we're chatting today with Mr. Harry Dent. You can get a free newsletter, a free daily newsletter, rather, from Harry by visiting harrydent.com. And Harry, you know, in the past, uh, we've uh, talked a lot about some of the demographic research that you've done. And, uh, you know, back in the, back, I believe it was in the 80s, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you, you, you wrote a book called The Great Boom Ahead, which was based largely on demographic research. So based upon your research, how do you see this playing out from a uh, just a demographic perspective? Well, well, again, the demographics would have said, without all this unbelievable money printing and stimulus, that the boom would have peaked in late 2007, which it did. It peaked, and that's why we went into a deep recession in 2008 and 9 because the baby boom had bought all their houses, spent all their money. They had peaked pretty Predictably on demographics. I mean, how house house spending peaks forty one to forty two, and and overall spending for the average household peaks forty six to forty seven, and that's going up slowly over time. So it's very predictable. So I said, oh, two thousand eight, we would be in the next depression. Well, we started to look like that depression because the downturn was much stronger than two thousand one to two and previous downturns, and that's when the when the central banks panicked and just started printing money nonstop. And you know, Mario Draghi said, "I will print unlimited amounts of money, you know, to stop this, you know, you from shorting our stocks and stop this downturn." This is insanity. You cannot tell the economy it cannot go into a recession and heal itself. You know, you you, you just can't do that, and that's what they've done. So so we're in this uh, even more precarious position where I think. You know that we're going to have to have the biggest crash, and and in my best cycles, Dennis, uh, come on on forty-year cycles, and that's a generation cycle as well. But but the best stock market cycle bottoms have come every forty years. You know, um, so this this one is due for late two thousand twenty-two or early two thousand twenty-three, and I, I think it's I think people are going to be shocked at what happens. And everybody thinks, and and I was just at a party the other night, and I'm telling all these crypto guys down here in Puerto Rico, because they're smart enough to be down here for the tax savings. I'm like, no, the stock market is going to crash, you know, 60 to 90% in the next 
few years, and nobody thinks that's possible. Nobody thinks it's even remote. And, and Bitcoin, Bitcoin's going to go back down to three, 4,000 before it has the greatest boom in history. Nobody can believe those. But that's what my research says very clearly. Greatest boom in history. It's been extended now with all this money printing. And it's only gone into stocks. The economy's weaker than it's ever been, and stocks are at the highest highs they've ever been. That is a huge disconnect. And you know with the, you know how the disconnect's going to be corrected? Stocks are going to have to crash 70 to 80 to 90%. And so just get out of the way. That simple. So, Harry, you know, the, the Federal Reserve has now really one policy, and that is keep interest rates at zero and print. Um, and I think they're printing to the tune now of about $150 billion, uh, a month. And, yeah. you know, the, 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 the current policy or policy guidance issued by uh, Mr. Powell is you're going to see that for the next 24 months. So when this crash occurs, won't their reaction just be do more? Yes, but, but, but the better analogy is the addiction analogy. Any addiction, doesn't matter whether it's heroin or alcohol or coffee or whatever, it takes more and more to get that high, and, 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 and when you come down, it takes more and more to come back again until you die, hit the pavement or die. That's what's going to happen here. They're just going to, they are going to keep doing what they're doing until it doesn't work. And it's already not working. Why have, why have they shifted suddenly to fiscal stimulus in this last cycle? Because the monetary stimulus, even though they've done it exponentially higher, is not working that much. I mean, how, how, how many times do people need to refinance their house or buy a little bigger house with these low interest rates, artificially low interest rates? until it just doesn't work and 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 now the fiscal stimulus is going to kick in and that's going to work a little better short term but you know i'm already seeing signs dennis in my in economic indicators the economy's not responding the markets are expecting a huge rebound here that's going to continue and you know what china already had its rebound earlier than us and it's already stalling and reversing so it, it i think that's what's going to happen here this rebound is going to be just a short-term response from oh yeah the economy was down and and a lot of stimulus and now it's now now people are going to spend to catch up and then it's going to be over because my demographic model which is the best indicator of reality i didn't even expect this when i invented this dentist the best economic reality of where stocks and the economy should be, and it says stocks should be at twelve to 14000 today. So we're going to go back down to reality to catch up with that. That's all we're going to do here is go back down to reality after the biggest bubble in modern history. This makes 1929 bubble look like nothing, and this is global and it's real estate and and it's stocks and it's bonds it's everything this is the greatest bubble in modern history and if you study bubbles like i started to have to do 10 to 15 years ago when i realized we were in a bubble economy you got to get the way you got to get the hell out of the way when bubbles burst there is has never dennis been a soft landing of any bubble in history and if this is the first one, I will apologize, but I am not going to bet on that. 
Well, my guest today is Mr. Harry Dent. You can get his free daily newsletter by visiting harrydent.com. The website, again, is harrydent.com. I'd encourage you to check it out. And I'll continue my conversation with Harry when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm Dennis Tubergen. I'm chatting today with prolific best-selling author, Mr. Harry Dent. Uh, Harry is offering our listeners his free daily newsletter today. You can get it by visiting the website, harrydent.com. The website, again, is harrydent.com. And, Harry, for our listeners maybe that are not familiar with your demographic research, which, you know, you really pioneered many, many years ago, uh, can you just give them a, a kind of a cursory explanation as to the, the, the basis of, of the predictability of this demographic research? Yeah, you know, Dennis, I, I, I was a I came out of Harvard Business School and got the, the you know, the typical job at Bain and and company, you know, you know, consulting the Fortune 100 companies on strategy, and I got bored with that after a few years because big companies are slow and slumbering, and so I started consulting to new ventures and smaller companies in California, and that's when I discovered demographics. I these new companies in the early 80s, back then, a long time ago. They were appealing to the new baby boomers just entering the economy with their strong spending and, and innovation. And that's when I discovered demographics. And at the same time, in 1981, the U.S. you know, put out its first um, information on, oh, here's when people spend money by age and income and stuff. I mean, the incredible information on consumer spending came out year after year, starting in 1981, and I ended up stumbling on that, stumbling on these new companies, realizing the baby boom was much bigger than anybody thought. It's going to cause the greatest boom in history because I'm (laughs) with these young companies appealing to them and not looking at the older companies at Bain & Company that were maturing with the Bob Hope generation. So I saw this new generation coming, and then I saw, oh, my God, the government is releasing information that makes economic prediction a piece of cake. The average person spends the most money at age 46, now 47, and, and, and you know, the next generation is going to be 48, 49. I mean, it's easy to predict when new generations will cause economy to boom like 1983 to 2007 and then bust. The difference is when we busted this time, government started printing money to offset it, and that, of course, cannot work. You do not get something for nothing. So my second biggest lesson, Dennis, is very clear. You don't get something for nothing, and this is the biggest something for nothing policy. So my po- my, I have cycles and demographics that are just hardcore predictable. And I have other cycles and technologies. Technology cycle is 45 and 90 years, and we see the biggest bubbles in stocks every 90 years, like 1929 and now. And so, so I, I'm a cycle guy, and and cycles are everything. There's cycles from 
our daily movements when we wake up to the annual seasons and stuff. But people don't like cycles, Dennis, because there's always a winter season. And people don't like to think that we're always going to have a winter. So people ignore cycles. I adore cycles. That's my strength. I study cycles, and there's clear cycles, 40-year generation cycles, in spending 45 and 90-year cycles in technology innovation and 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 32-year cycles in political, um, you know, positive and negative. I mean, I, I, it's taken me 40 years to identify the most important cycles that drive our economy. And you know what, Dennis? The economy, I can predict what the economy is going to look like when your youngest child grows up. And it's the peak of their spending or retirement cycle decades from now. It's that predictable if you understand demographics and technology cycles, which actually drive growth and productivity and spending over time. It's that simple. Well, if you're just joining us, my guest today is prolific best-selling author, Mr. Harry Dent. You can get Harry's free daily newsletter by visiting harrydent.com. So, Harry, let's dig into these cycles a little bit because, uh, you know, that, that's just fascinating. And let, let's talk about this generational cycle. I think you said it was a 40-year cycle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the um, Henry Ford generation peaked in 1929. The Bob Hope generation peaked in, in real GDP and spending in, in 1968, and now the baby boom in 2007. That was the natural peak. And uh, back in the early to mid-80s, I was predicting we're going to see the greatest boom in history because this baby boom was larger than the generation before, and much larger. And that's what we saw. Nobody saw... <laughs> Dennis, I, uh, when I was putting out my first books in 1989, The Power to Predict, in 1992, The Great Boom Ahead, as you mentioned, people thought I was an idiot saying there's going to be a great boom. At, they thought the 80s was it. I'm like, no, this boom is just starting. I could measure it from this generational pattern. I just lagged the birth index. 46 to 47 years for the peak in spending. I mean, it, a 10-year-old could do this, okay? It's not genius. It's just understanding what's important and not. And my criticism of economists, and, and I will go to my grave with this, they don't know what's important. Their academics never had sex, never run a business, and don't understand what's important to the economy. And you know what's important right now, Dennis? We just had the biggest downturn. That, that, that in 2008-9 that needed a lot of restructuring of business and investments and stuff, and, and the central bankers didn't let it happen. So we're, we're in this crippling recovery that takes exponentially more stimulus to just grow. And, and, and quote this number, 1.6% has been the average GDP growth rate since the bottom in 2009. 1.6%, the worst recovery in all of history, and stocks are at the highest highs, most overvalued, and, and, and like everything's beautiful. It's not beautiful. So money printing drives up stocks it does not drive up consumer spending substantially and we're in this weak economy with overvalued stocks and it's going to have to have a reset and it's going to be major and i'm telling you if it doesn't start by the end of this year and i think even likely by the end of this month or early may 
um, I'm going to quit my profession. Well, let's talk about what happens after the crash. So based on your demographic and generational cycle research, uh, what does the next recovery look like? Well, you know, it, it will be more like the 1940s and 50s recovery after World War II. Um, it will the it will not be as dramatic because our demographics, the millennial generation, people say, oh, they're bigger and there's more of them. Oh, bull. Yes, there are more of them because they started at, at, at higher birth rates and, and their birth cycle lasted longer. But the relative growth from the millennial generation only takes us back in, in, into the 2000, late 2030s, uh, 20s, I'm sorry, um, and 30s only takes us back to where the baby boom took us. We don't need more homes. We don't need more infrastructures because our our population growth is slowing and our generation cycles are slowing. So the next boom will probably start in stocks between late 2022 and 23 sometime. And it will it, it may at best take us back, and I don't even think we'll reach there, to where stocks have reached in this bubble where they're overvalued. So, so we've seen the best of the stock market. We've seen the best of real estate gains in the U.S. forever because we're an aging country. And unless we start opening the gates to many more immigrants, which would love to come in, and I love immigrants myself because they work harder than, than people here, but whatever your opinion on that, unless we do that, we, we, we've seen our best days, and all the growth is gonna, not going to be in China because China's seen its best days. It's going to be in Southeast Asia and India. That's the future. And, and if I could live anywhere in the world as a gringo, I call myself now in Puerto Rico, I'd <laughs> live in Australia and be investing in the Asian boom. And the Asian boom will no longer be East Asia, which means China, Japan, Korea. It will be Southeast Asia and India and Pakistan. That's going to be the next giant growth area in the world. So that's the future. The future is not hard to predict in general. It's the short-term movements in the stock market that I have to struggle with. Those are harder to predict. And I have my indicators for that, but I'm guessing at the short term. And I just want to be 60 to 70% right to help my newsletter subscribers. In the long term, the future of the world couldn't be more clear and predictable. Demographics and technology cycles tell you where we're going. Well, the clock says we're going to have to stop our conversation there. My guest today has been Mr. Harry Dent. Uh, his newsletter is free. It is daily, and you can get it at harrydent.com. The website, again, is harrydent.com. Harry, thank you for joining us today from beautiful, sunny Puerto Rico, and we'd love to have you back down the road. Yeah, I'd love to come back, Dennis. We will return after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're listening in today, and thanks again to our special guest, Mr. Harry Dent, for joining us on today's program. 
In the first segment of today's program, I talked a bit about one of the threats to your dreams of a secure, stress-free retirement. That is the topic of our special report this month. The title of our May special report is Five Retirement Threats and How to Potentially Avoid Them. You can go to the website, requestyourreportnow.com, to get a complimentary copy mailed to you when it becomes available. The website, again, is requestyourreportnow.com. In this segment, I want to talk about another couple threats outlined in the report. As I talked about with my guest today, Mr. Harry Dent, central banks around the world are printing money at a crazy pace. Or to use Harry's words, they are pursuing a policy of insanity. Now, how crazy is it? Well, if you take a look at the Fed balance sheet, and for those of you that aren't familiar with all this terminology, the Fed balance sheet is simply reflective as to the amount of money that the Fed has created, literally out of thin air. Now, presently, the Fed's balance sheet is about 42% of GDP, or 42% of economic output. That's triple where it was at the time of the financial crisis when it was about 14%. At the end of World War II, the Fed's balance sheet was about 10% of GDP. And at the peak or height of the Great Depression, it stood at about 5% of GDP. At the end of World War I, about 4%. So, Suffice it to say that the central bank has been creating money at a frenzied pace. But this is not limited to the Federal Reserve, which is the central bank of the United States. This is happening in Europe and Japan as well. If you look at the European Central Bank's balance sheet, that balance sheet from late 2007 until the end of last year, has grown about 700%. The Japanese Central Bank has a balance sheet chart whose growth really mirrors that of the European Central Bank. The Japanese Central Bank has seen a sevenfold increase in in its balance sheet uh, over the past decade or so as well. Now, there are no shortage of academics who tell us we don't need to worry about this. This will not be a problem. Don't worry about money creation. They tell us that governments can't run out of money because they can always access freshly printed or newly created money from the country's central bank. And then they almost dogmatically assert that inflation will never be a problem because if inflation were to rear its ugly head, The government can always remove money from the system through taxation. More insanity. Now, this is not the first time in history that money creation has been attempted to solve a debt problem. They tried it in the Roman Empire. They tried it in France twice in the 1700s. They tried it in Weimar, Germany. And more recently, it's been attempted in Zimbabwe, Argentina, and Venezuela. And the outcome 
has been the same every time. Now, whether we ultimately see that outcome this time will depend entirely upon the policies pursued by the central bankers. Now, the reality is this. They've painted themselves into a corner, and they really don't have any solid options. They either, one, stop printing and the debt and derivative time bomb that I talked about in the first segment collapses, or two, they continue money creation until the currency is destroyed, and after the currency is destroyed, the debt and derivative time bomb explodes. Option one is nothing short of a dismal outcome, but option two is worse. Now, if you would like to learn more, I'm offering the May special report on today's program. If you'd like to get a copy of this report, all you need to do is visit requestyourreportnow.com. Requestyourreportnow.com is the website, and I'll be very glad to send you a copy of our May report titled Five Retirement Threats and How to Potentially Avoid Them. Now, in the time I have left, I want to talk briefly about threat number three, to your comfortable, stress-free retirement, at least I want to talk about it briefly. See, all this money creation has been bullish for stocks and for real estate. Now, when the money creation stops, or perhaps prior to that time, as I discussed with Harry Dent today, these assets, meaning stocks and real estate, will collapse as this debt and derivative bubble that I talked about in the first segment unwinds. Now, we saw this at the time of the great financial crisis, and I believe we're going to have to see it again, only this time I expect the collapse will be much more severe. Now, when one takes a look at the value of stocks, or maybe more accurately put, stock valuations, One of the most popular ways to value stocks is to use an indicator that is now known as the Buffett indicator ever since Mr. Buffett suggested that using this indicator was his favorite way to determine if stocks were overvalued or undervalued. And the indicator is easy to construct. You simply take the total value of stocks or the total market capitalization and you divide by gross domestic product or economic output. Now, historically speaking, that ratio is about 65%. In other words, the total value of stocks has historically, on average, been about 65% of economic output or GDP. Now, back in 2000, prior to the tech stock bubble collapsing, that number reached 159.2%. That is the most overvalued stocks had been at any time in history. Today, the number exceeds 190%. Now, at the time of the financial crisis, back in 2007, this valuation was at about 110%. And keep in mind, At that valuation level, at 110%, stocks declined 50%. If this, or perhaps I should say when this 
debt and derivative bubble blows up, stocks will likely decline at that time as well. And this time, given these valuation levels, a 60 or 70% decline would not be out of the question given the size of the decline last time. And that, of course, has been confirmed uh, by Mr. Harry Dent's opinion today as well. So again, I'd like to invite you to get more information. You can do that by requesting our May special report. This will be going out in the form of the You May Not Know report to the clients of our company. But if you're not a client of our company and you'd like to get a copy of this report, all you have to do is visit requestyourreportnow.com and let us know where to mail your copy. We'll be glad to do that. Again, the website, requestyourreportnow.com. And if you don't yet have the RLA app, you can go to the App Store on your smartphone, search under your RLA, that's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A, and you'll be able to get free access to the app, which will uh, give you all of our free resources, including the newsletter, the webinar, and the podcast version of this radio program. That's all the time I have for this week. Glad you decided to tune in. I'll be back again next week. Make it a great week.